we're going to finish sort of a journey that we've been on today, and it is, it looks a lot like Christmas in here already, and out in the lobby and everything, uh, so we're not going to get Christmassy on our messages yet till next week. Uh, we're going to finish this series that we started about a month or so ago called Pilgrim Songs. What we're doing in this series is looking at, uh, we're picking a few of these 15 psalms between Psalm 120 and Psalm 134 called the Songs of Ascent. So this group of songs would be sung uh, by the ancient Jewish people as they would pilgrimage to Jerusalem, their capital city and place of worship, about three times a year for different, you know, holy days and feasts and festivals. So this group of psalms, they would be kind of their, their playlist as they, on their road trip. And so we've been looking at a few of those uh, the last few weeks. And today we're going to finish this journey by looking at the next to the last one, Psalm 133. It's only three short verses, but it's got a very powerful theme to it that we'll talk about uh, this morning. So let's read it together. Psalm 133, and it says this, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. So the, the key theme of this psalm that we'll talk about in our time together today is this idea of unity. Unity is the key, it's the theme of these three verses in Psalm 133. Now, I will say at the outset, this is a bit more of like a family sort of talk that we're going to have because it is related to unity within the church. But the principles that we'll talk about can be used to see unity in the rest of your life as well. The keys that we're going to talk about, sort of the steps toward unity, the importance of unity, you can use these in your relationships, in your family, uh, all the things, especially as we're around them more during the holiday season. Maybe you need to really uh, focus on this idea for your life and your family, your relationships. What's interesting about this psalm is that it's actually written by King David. So of these 15 songs, David wrote four of them, his son Solomon wrote one of them, and the other ten we don't really know who wrote them. But this one is ascribed to King David. And I find it interesting that David focuses this psalm on unity, because as you look at his life, his life is full of disunity. Like, so he knows the importance of this topic because of the scarcity of it in his own life. And so you look at even David as a teenager, he is anointed by the prophet to be the next king over Israel. And he's the youngest. He's the little guy. He's last in line. So you can imagine the tension that may arise with his six older brothers. That they were passed by for little kid Dave here. The stinky guy who takes care of the sheep, right? The kid with, writes poetry with a slingshot while he, take, while he watches dirty, nasty sheep all day. Little Dave. So you can imagine there's going to be some tension in that family. That, you, that unity is not going to be as strong maybe as it would have been before he's anointed as king. Then later on, he, we, we all know the story, he defeats Goliath in this epic battle, mano a mano, and knocks him out with his slingshot that he'd practiced out in the field with the sheep, right? So while he's doing that, he becomes later on this huge war hero at a very young age. And so the king kind of takes him in as his personal assistant, sort of his personal musician, if you will, and the tension between them grows as well. The disunity between Saul, who actually is his father-in-law later on. He marries one of Saul's daughters. So there's, there's tension there. There's disunity there for David in this relationship as well. And then later on, later in his life, uh, later in his uh, rule as king, uh, he actually has an affair with one of his best friend's wives, 
that's going to cause some disunity. So then, as we know, if you know the story, you know that he actually impregnated his best friend's wife, which is a problem. So to cover that up, he kills his best friend or has his best friend killed. Lots of disunity in David's life. And then at the very end of his life, even his household is so disunified that one of his sons rebels. Now, maybe you've had a kid rebel, but I'm talking like literal rebellion. Like his son says, I'm going to set up my own kingdom because my dad's the king, and I'm going to rebel, like literally start an army and lead a rebellion and set up my own kingdom against my father. So it's interesting, again, that David would focus on this idea of unity in this psalm as a man who didn't live within much unity in his own life. And when we look at, again, verse 1, it says that it's good and pleasant when God's people dwell in unity. A lot of versions or translations say when brothers dwell in unity. I don't know if you grew up with any siblings or not, so you you probably have some pretty crazy stories about how you and your siblings did not always have unity growing up. You probably have some maybe even like knockout, drag, drag out fights sort of about how disunified you and your siblings may have been at times. And hopefully it's not that way uh, as we've grown older, but sometimes there's still disunity. And so we can relate when it's, it's good and pleasant when brothers dwell in unity, but specifically what he's talking about is God's people. It's, it's good, it's pleasant when God's people live in unity. It's good and pleasant. So there's a couple of observations I want to make quickly about this idea of unity, and then we'll talk about how to achieve it in our lives. So the, the first thing that's obvious, I would think, is that unity is very important in your life, in your relationships, in your, in your family. And then again, in the context of this psalm, within God's people, within the church, unity is very important. And again, David would have known the importance and the beauty of unity by the lack of it in his own life. So unity was also important for Jesus, especially within the church, within his followers. And we know how important this idea or topic of unity was to Jesus because of when he, when he was most concerned about this happening. Let's look at John 17, starting at verse number 20. This is Jesus praying the night he is arrested, the night before he is crucified. He's praying. And here's part of his prayer, John 17, verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. He's talking about the the 12 inner circle disciples that are following him right there. But he says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us way down the line. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So this idea of unity within God's people and his followers of Jesus was so important to him that that was like literally his dying wish was that his crew would stick together. Like, he, he's praying about a lot of other things that seem way more important. Like, I really don't want to die. Hey, Dad, if there's a way out of this, now's, the, now's a good time. Like, he's strengthening himself for what he knows is about to happen to him. And yet he takes time to pray for unity for his followers and what will become the church of Jesus Christ after them. That's a big deal. So you know it's, it's big in his heart. You know it's heavy on his heart when he's praying in this sort of setting. Because he knows that when... 
when the leader of this group is gone, it's going to be hard for them to stick together. And really what you find in the next few hours is once he's arrested and on trial, they scatter. And they are not unified. And some of them are hiding here and some of them are hiding there. And some of them just leave all together. And eventually they get back together and get their act together and the church moves forward. But for a while it was touch and go. For a while this prayer seemed like it may not be answered because he, he knows it's going to be so difficult. That's why, God, I pray that you would empower my followers to stick together, to be unified as you and I are one. And then it's important, he knows it's not just for this group, but for generation to generation to follow after, that follows after them to also be unified. Because the further away you get from the beginning, the epicenter of this movement, the harder it's going to be to be unified. So as it spreads, the further, and that's the thing, the, the larger any organization gets or any group gets, it's harder to stay unified. It's harder to stay on message. It's harder to stay together as one following through on the plan or the goal or whatever it is that we're trying to accomplish. So Jesus says not just for them, but for the ones that come after them, help them to stick together as well. Unity is so important. But with that importance comes the second observation of unity, and that is unity is not always easy to achieve. Unity can be tricky. And Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. Paul says, he's writing to the, the church in Ephesus, he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So he says you have to make an effort to keep unity. Unity is not automatic. In fact, disunity is more automatic than you have to work at Unity. You have to work at maintaining this unified front. It doesn't just happen. We have to make it happen. It's not always easy to do, but it's so worth it. Unity must be developed. And so that's what we're going to talk about with most of our time together today is how to develop unity. And again, we're, talking, we're going to talk specifically as far as the church and even this church, how we can maintain unity um, how we can be, still be one, even though we're all different. Paul uses the, the metaphor of a body, the body of Christ. There's different parts and different functions, but we all are under the same Savior, the same Lord with the same mission, working, uh, doing our own thing to, together in sync with each other. We can remain unified. So how do we develop unity within the church? The, the first way to do that is simply through humility. Humility is the first key to developing unity. Again, let's go to another letter from Paul, Philippians chapter 2, and he, he talks about how this is a key to unity as well. Paul says, so first he, he in Philippians 2, the first couple verses here, he lists really the benefits of Christian community, why it's good, what the positive aspects of it. So he says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, that's a benefit. If any comfort from his love, that's a benefit. If any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. So if we want these positive traits to continue and to grow, he says, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of and of one mind. So he's saying, hey, if we want these benefits to continue and grow and flourish and mature to what they should be to make us even stronger and better as a body, then we have to have this unity. And he goes on to describe what that looks like. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. 
in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Humility is a key to maintaining unity. Um, Author C.S. Lewis said this. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. If we can adopt this mindset, others first, uh, then we can develop this strong sense of unity. It's a great first building block. And it's really the definition of the two greatest commands that Jesus said, love God, love others. So that's humility. It takes humility to put others ahead of myself. It takes humility for us to put the interests of others ahead of our own interest. Again, it's natural to do the opposite. So that's why it doesn't just happen. It's not automatic. It's work. There's effort made to make this unity happen. Humility is a huge key to unity. Phrases like being a team player. You ever heard that before? Others first. Another key here, and this is kind of a paraphrase of a different letter uh, from the New Testament. It says, rejoice when others rejoice and cry when others cry. Don't mix those up. Okay, it's, again, it's natural for us to rejoice when others cry and cry when others rejoice. It's human nature to do that. We want what's best for us, not always what's best for others. But that humility is what makes unity possible. That we cheer each other on, that we support one another above ourselves. Unity is rooted in humility. It shows that we truly care about one another. And then that builds to really the second sort of building block, if you will, of developing unity. So unity builds into trust. The second key to developing unity is trust. Now how many of you ever heard of a thing called a trust fall? I'm waiting. (laughs) I don't trust any of you people now. No. But the idea is that you're, you, you have your back to them, maybe your eyes closed, and you just fall back into the, you're going to trust they're going to catch you when you fall. Trust is a huge key to developing unity. And in a church setting like this, trust grows among Christ followers as each Christ follower grows themselves, spiritually. So it should be that as we're, all, as we're each maturing in our faith, that unity grows because trust is going to grow. And so I wrote down a few sort of traits as I was thinking about this, and then I looked at it again, and I thought, I'm basically listing what's called the fruit of the Spirit. Like all these traits I'm listing are already in Scripture, so I don't have to reinvent the wheel here. So what I want to do just for a couple minutes is go through what, what Paul calls the nine fruit of the Spirit and show how as we, as I personally grow in my, in my development as a Christian, it builds trust in others around me. And as we're all growing together in our maturity, in our faith, it builds trust to make us stronger and more unified. So the first one Paul lists is love. We'll talk about that one more in a minute, so I'll skip that one for now. Then joy. So as we grow in our mutual joy in and for one another, that builds trust. Because again, I'm putting your interest above mine. I cheer you on. I celebrate your success and I'm with you in your failure. That builds trust, that mutual joy that we have in and for one another. And then he he talks about peace. That goes back to Ephesians 4 that we read earlier. He says, keep the unity of spirit in the bond of peace. So peace is essential for unity. We work together to keep the peace, to build trust, and therefore unity. The next fruit of the Spirit, and this is from Galatians 5 if you want to look it up and and read this later. Uh, So patience is the next listed fruit of the Spirit, and this is maybe my favorite one. 
So as we grow in patience with, not, in, not impatient with one another, okay, as we grow in our patience with one another, that helps to build trust. Because patience for one another, uh, we give each other time to grow. We give each other permission to fail. We offer forgiveness when we fail. That's what patience does. It doesn't expect, oh, you have to be perfect because that's not going to happen. It doesn't have this crazy amount of, you know, pressure to perform. No, because I'm going to be patient with you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have your back. It's going to be okay. We're going to learn and grow together over time. We're going to be patient with each other. So that builds trust, which then strengthens our unity. And then Paul lists the next two fruit of the Spirit, kindness and goodness. So as we're consistently kind and good. Now, these seem like very easy things to do. But as you drive out the next several weeks and the roads are way busy and the parking lots are very full and the stores are crammed and you're at, it's going to be hard to show kindness and goodness sometimes to people. And you're going to want to, you know, give some waves, you know, to them in the other car that you wouldn't normally give them. And you're going to maybe say some, think some things and maybe want to say some things to people that you wouldn't normally say. This time of year, it's sometimes... We think, oh, it's peace and joy and love. It's Christmas. No, no, no. It's like bumper-to-bumper traffic, and the stores are too crammed, and there's like literally a 1,000 people at the Walmart checkout, and there's only three of them open. Are you with me on that? Right? And so it's hard. We have to work at kindness and goodness, but as we do that in general, and as we do that within within this body, we will find that it builds trust, which strengthens unity. These consistent traits of kindness and goodness can go a long way in that. And then Paul lists faithfulness. Faithfulness is probably what I would consider the bedrock of trust. So it's this, I'll stick with you no matter what. I'm not going to give up on you. I'm not going to quit on, in believing in you. I'm going to be there for you to kind of pick you up and help you along. That's faithfulness. It's not, you know, oh, they hurt me or offended me, so they're out. Or I'm going to just cut them off the first time they ever do anything that I don't like. You know, that's, we want to be faithful in our relationships, faithful within this body. And again, giving allowance for each other's faults, as Paul says. Faithfulness is, a, is the bedrock of trust that builds unity. And the last two that he talks about, the way to build trust and strengthen unity is through gentleness and self-control. So gentleness, kind of that looks like I won't judge you, I won't lash out at you, I won't use you for my own gain. I'm going to be gentle in how we approach our relationship. And then self-control is important because it says, hey, I'm going to be responsible for my spiritual growth. And I'm going to do the best I can to grow and mature and seek God and try to, you know, kind of become more like him so that we can build trust together. I'm not going to expect this from you that I don't expect from myself. That builds trust, which strengthens unity. These kinds of traits, these Christian sort of attributes as we live our lives day in and day out. Now, here's the deal. You're not going to, we're not going to get all these all the time, okay? We're just not. It's a, it's a lifelong process, it's, it's growth day by day, moment by moment. But as we strive to be more like Jesus in these ways, we will build trust, which therefore will strengthen our unity. It builds mutual trust, which strengthens the church. So we have humility that builds to trust, and then trust uh, builds into love. The third key to develop unity is love. Colossians 3, again, Paul, again, we got a lot of Paul today. Uh, Colossians 3, verse 14, Paul says, And over all these virtues put 
on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So in the verses before this, when he's listing a lot of the traits that we just talked about, he's saying, hey, you should be kind, you should be loving, you should be gentle, you should be patient. But he says, over all these virtues, put on love. So the imagery here is that it's like a garment that you put on. Put on love. Clothe yourself in love. Make it noticeable for everyone around you to see you're living in love. And then in Ephesians 5, again, Paul, here we go again. We're going to, look, we're going to take a couple minutes and, and kind of work through this one for a minute because I love uh, the way he explains this. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, Paul says, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So let's, let's, let's kind of break this down for just a minute. There's three, three things I want to see from this verse, just, or these two verses very quickly. So he says, walking in love is an offering and sacrifice to God. So the truest form of worship in your life is to love. Not, we, when we, we worshiped here already, but it's not just singing. It's not music. It's not even here within these walls. It's like, how do we love outside of the walls? How do we walk in love? If we do that, it's a true offering to God. It's true worship to him. The greatest form of worship that we can give to God is to love. And then he says it's a sweet-smelling aroma. And there's been a lot of good smells this last week, I'm sure, right? You know, like sage stuffing, you know. Maybe you're like a gravyaholic, and I can smell the gravy. I can smell it. It's near, you know, that kind of thing. Um, you know, and so, and then as we continue on in this Christmas season, you know, you've got like pine for the trees and cinnamon and candy canes and all that kind of, all these good smells. So let me ask you this. How do you smell? Pretty good. All right, I'm okay. But really, the, the question that we're really asking with that statement is how are you loving because Paul says that as we walk in love, it's a sweet-smelling aroma to God. Our life of love is like, to God, it's like, mmm, mmm, turkey, you know, whatever, whatever favorite smells God has. That's what it smells like to him as we walk in love. It's just, it's just like, oh, I can get used to this. This is, this is when my, my people, my church are doing things right. Oh, it goes up to God. It says like a sweet-smelling aroma. So if you want to smell good, love well. If you want to smell good, love well. And then at the very top of this verse, he says, be imitators of God. Now, I had a lot of taters this last week uh, at Thanksgiving. But God's favorite kind of tater is an imitator. (laughs) Right? God's favorite kind of tater is an imitator. So Paul says, be imitators of God. I can't get that out of my head now when I say it out loud like that. I can't unthink that now. Be imitators of God. So 1 John, John says that God is love. And then John 3.16 says God loved, so loved the world that he gave his only son. So you are never more like God except when you love. You are most like God when you love those around you. Because God is love. And he loves so much that he definitely put others ahead of himself. He sacrificed his own and only son for us out of love. And Jesus, obviously, with his sacrifice of condescending himself, we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks in our Christmas series, but he he came down from the glory of heaven where he is king to be born in a stable around some nasty animals in the middle of nowhere 
and not, you know, there's nothing. He, he gave all of that up for us out of love. So we are the most like God when we love. And Jesus echoes this sentiment in John 13, 35, when he says this. He says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So, People will know how much you belong to Jesus, not by how often you attend church, although you should, not by how much you read your Bible, although you should, not how much you pray, although you should, not how much you give, although you should. People will know most, first, the highest priority that, God, that you are one of God's people, you're one of followers of Jesus by how you love. Now catch this, not just in general, what does he say? Love one another. This is unity within the church. He's talking to his disciples here in John 13. Hey, you guys have got to stick together. I know a couple of you are brothers and you fight and you compete. I know a couple of you are older and you think that you're better than the younger ones in the group. I know some of you think that you're closer to me. I'm talking to you, John, who wrote this. He thought he was Jesus' favorite, right? And he even wrote it. Uh, so it must be true. I don't know. So he's like, hey, no, no, no. We got to put all this aside and you've got to love each other or you're going to mess this whole thing up. Because the world's pretty divided, wouldn't you say? Like the world's so like divided on all sorts of fronts, on belief systems, on political systems, on, on all sorts of things. That we're just so fractured as a culture. So that's what makes the church so different, is that we come from different backgrounds and cultures, and we come from different places. And again, there are Christians all over the world. So there are Christians in countries that we don't know their language, but we have the same love. We have the same spirit within us that they have in Zimbabwe or in France or the Ukraine, right? So we, that's what makes us different. So we've got to really focus on that, love one another. Hey, I, we, I don't really think exactly the same as you on everything, but I can still love you as, as a, fo a follower of Jesus. So I, I, don't, I don't have the same exact, you know, thing of how I think life is. I don't have the same background or experience or whatever, but hey, we're both Jesus-loving, following people, and so hey, we can love each other. That speaks volumes to our culture that is so disunified, that is so fractured. That's what makes the church so beautiful, is that so many different cultures and places and time zones and, and methods of church, man, we can love each other through those differences. That's what makes the church unique and beautiful is our unity developed through love. It's the number one marker of a Christian. So let's look here as, as we kind of wrap it up a little bit on what unity looks like. So we get back to Psalm 133 where we kind of launched this whole uh, thing today. David gives us two similes of what unity looks like. Let's look at the first one here. Psalm 133, let's read verse number two again. He says, it, unity is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. There's a lot there. So Aaron is the high priest of Israel. He's Moses' brother, and he's the first high priest, the first kind of religious. Moses was a religious leader, but Aaron is like the, he takes over that religious part, and Moses does sort of the, the office work, I guess. I don't know. I don't know how you explain that. But God sets Aaron apart as the first high priest. So he's the one that does the sacrifices. He's the one that they go to, you know, to find forgiveness of sins through the animal sacrificial system. So that when they talk about Aaron's beard, that's, what they're, that's who they're talking about. And so what we see here is, so when Aaron is appointed, when he's set apart and chosen to be the high priest, he's anointed with oil. 
That was the symbol, and that's how kings were also anointed. So David would have had this same experience as a teenager. He was anointed, which just means set apart for God's holy purpose. That's what an anointing means. And so Aaron would have had this experience as he is set apart and chosen um, to lead God's people in this way. It would have been oil, and he apparently had a long beard, you know, like I guess everybody in the Old Testament probably did. I don't know, uh, but he did. And so this oil runs down. And so David says unity is like this. It's like this oil because it's, it's God's people are set apart for his purpose. They, they are holy, not because they are holy, but because they are set apart for God's specific purpose. So if we're unified, we express that purpose well. We, again, we show that we are set apart and looking differently, living differently. There's an anointing on the church when the church is united. Our true calling and purpose is revealed and expressed. And oil is also a symbol in Scripture of the Holy Spirit. So what we also know here is that the Holy Spirit then is strongly present and in the church when the church is united things can happen things can change God can move and do things in a united church in a fractured church nothing's going to happen so if we start arguing about the, the color there have literally been church splits about the color of carpet right you've heard of those that really happens it's crazy but it happens and so things like well I don't like the pastor sorry uh, you know sorry I mean you can come talk to me if you don't like me and we'll have a chat and that'd be great but um I don't know where I'm going with that. I'm just, my office door is open. I'll give you my email address if you want it. And if you have any complaints, I'm the complaint department, all right? So anyway, uh, thank you. So here's the deal. People fight over all sorts of things in churches all the time. I'm thankful that that doesn't describe this church. So this is not like, hey, we need to get into shape and do better. It's like, no, we're great. We're unified. So this is kind of preaching to the choir a little bit. But it's also a good reminder that the unity that we have, first of all, is somewhat rare in the church, which is sad. But it's powerful. So God can do things and has done things through this small church in this community because of our unity. The Holy Spirit can work and do things and change hearts and lives for his glory because of our unity. It's the, the Holy Spirit working through us through our unity. The second simile as we close that David uses in, is in verse 3. He says, It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Now, Hermon is a mountain. Some translations say Mount Hermon. So Mount Hermon is about 125 miles north of Jerusalem, where the people are traveling as they sing this song. And it's a very large mountain, much larger than they, they talk about Mount Zion. We'll get to that in a second. It's a very large mountain. But where it's located geographically, there's not a whole lot of rainfall in this area of, of this region. And so what's interesting is Mount Hermon has a significant amount of dewfall in the morning. Significant enough to where even through times where there should be a drought, there's been no rain, and an agricultural society is going to be dependent upon rain to survive, the dew is sufficient to meet the needs of that community without rain. So he's saying it's as if this provision from God is falling on Mount Zion, which Mount Zion is an actual literal mountain right just outside of Jerusalem. Uh, but it also, throughout Scripture, describes God's people or describes God's kingdom or Israel in a way. Uh, and even Jesus talks about Zion in, in sort of the future. God's kingdom is Zion. So when we look at the unity of God's people, of the church, he said, hey, it's like God, God's going to provide for what you need, just like he does on Mount Hermon as you're unified. That God's going to use you for his glory. It's like refreshing dew from the mountain falling on God's people. It's like Mountain Dew. So I need, I need somebody to help me ha pass these out. 
if you saw my check-in earlier, you saw every, no one's going to leave empty-handed today because you're all going to get a Mountain Dew uh, today as you leave. Now, you, you, can, you can drink this if you want. I, I will probably drink mine um, because Mountain Dew is my second favorite soda of all time um, after Coca-Cola. So we can go ahead and hand these, hand these out while I'm talking. I don't know how many we need, but I've got a bunch. I bought extra in case we had, didn't have enough people, right, so I can take them home. No, I'm just kidding. So God says, unity. so here, I want, I, I'm going to do like a mind trick on you. So now every time you see Mountain Dew, you're going to think unity, unity. So you're gonna, you will not be able to go to the store and see a case of Mountain Dew for the rest of your life without thinking about unity in the church. Because David writes in Psalm 133, verse 3, that unity within God's people is like good old Mountain Dew. It's refreshing. It's just so tasty. It's full of a lot of calories and sugar, but we love that, right? Uh, I love Mountain Dew. It's so good. And I'm so glad I found a use to actually get it out in church, right? <laughs> this is my excuse. So unity is like Mountain Dew. We have, yeah, we got more. We got plenty. Unity is like Mountain Dew. So again, now, now that you go to the store, um, yeah, you can drink it in here if you want. Go ahead and open it. I don't care, right? Um, yeah. And you don't have to drink it. If you don't want it, give it to me. I'll drink it. No, no, just, no. The point is you take it home to kind of sit it somewhere and remind you, hey, we want to be like this. We want our unity to be refreshing in our community and our culture that's so divided. We want our unity to really be something that's bright and noticeable and kind of gives a sugar rush spiritually to the people around us that are, that are kind of dying and spiritually dead. We want to infuse them with this Mountain Dew. That's what David says. It's, it's sort, of, sort of like Mountain Dew. So anyway, that, again, that was my excuse to have Mountain Dew in church. But it worked. So again, whenever you see Mountain Dew, think unity in the church. Unity in the church. That's what you think about. So unity is very important. We've seen the benefits. And, and again, you might see, be like David where you see the, the importance of unity because it's lacking in your life. And maybe you remember days, years back where, man, things were way calmer before this thing happened or things were way, you know, more chill at previous Thanksgivings than they were this year because of something, maybe a rift in your family or a disagreement or a change or, or whatever. And so we, we want to say, we don't want to look back in the good old days. We want to like live in them. We and so we do that through unity in your family, in your relationships, in your marriage, with your kids, and in our church. We want unity to be supreme in all that we do. Because, again, that's where God can work the best. That's where the Holy Spirit can do the most is through a group of people who are unified for a common goal, a common purpose, helping to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ everywhere. Despite where we come from, our background, you know, certain things that we think about, certain opinions that we have. Hey, if we can be unified under the umbrella and the banner of Jesus and his mission and God could do some really great things in your life, in, your, in our community, and through our church.